Yeah, I'm more in legacy mode these days. And I'm inspired by your podcast because we're looking back at our, you know, our past more and the dots that connect everything. And, you know, I'm always overwhelmed by the new history and the reality that we grew up with, you know, version of who Daniel Boone was and David Bowie and things. They weren't quite that cast of characters that we romanticize, you know, careful. I don't want to get a bunch of Texans after you, but, um, you know, Bowie was a pretty scary slave owner, land grabbing dude. I'm from Virginia. We could say the same thing about George Washington, James Madison, like anybody from that time period. The new history you start looking at and back here in Denver and they have the Sand Creek massacres and you start to look at yourself like, oh, my God, who and who are where? What do we come from? You know, who are we? But the other side is our Denver history. I'm just now looking back in our arts and telling stories in this Zoom and things. You can bring people in and record verbal history, the narrative of history and things that people, you know, have made on their own. But there's these incredible rich histories. Our Denver Black history, for instance, you know, was just incredible story of a burgeoning upper middle class. And we had our own Oklahoma thing right here, you know, but it was much quieter. Stapleton, the Ku Klux Klan, you know. Oh, yeah. I, li I lived in Wilmington, North Carolina, where they actually had a, a massacre in, I think, 1898, where all the white, I don't know, people of influence literally burned down Black-owned businesses and ran them out of town. I was for the Smithsonian Black History Museum. They're doing a fantastic project going around the country where they document people bring in work of their family history. And, you know, people are, and I, I was hired becoming a federal government contractor. I never advised to anybody they go so far up, they think you're making nuclear missiles. You have to tie into them so deep in your accounts. But, And then, of course, that's when the government went broke and it took them two years to pay me and stuff. But I thought it was such a beautiful, interesting program. I joined up and I got it. And seven to seven, we shot raw pictures of ephemera the black families and history they brought in, the Buffalo soldiers and our history of Denver emancipation papers and extremely moving. And that's when it opened up my eyes, like started to find, oh, they had a newspaper bigger than the Rocky Mountain News, you know, like what happened? How did it turn into a ghetto? You know, like what, what happened here? And uh, it was an education for you know, lily privileged white boy here. It really, you know, I'm slow to come around to all this, but and it's an enlightening, I think it's hope I'm inspirational for all of us, you know, a new era enlightened society. You would think until Trump comes back, we have four here we go, get ready, you know. <laughs> white America is getting their moment this next four years. And it's mm. just, we have to wait for the pendulum to swing back again. Yes, 
I was raised in the same sort of uh, like affluent white neighborhood, and it's uh, there's been a lot of changes with with society, culture, and in hindsight, in uh, about how things were not as pure as the driven snow as Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean <laughs> blue and all that crap. Well, it's our whitewashed history, literally, that, that is sort of coming to that. That brings around the whole story, you know, in the family that I'm sensitive to, you know, it's just such a hairy legacy. Speaking of before I get to my legacy, I'm sort of been digging through family legacy of Samuel Finley, Brees Morse that, you know, of course, did the Morse code and he was a fabulous portrait painter and he used the camera obscura to set up a lot of his architectural and three-dimensional work. And so he was ahead of the game and was in Paris when Duguerre, when they were deciding if they were going to give photography to the public again. And he got on the boat and came back here and took one of the first, I used to say the first, but you know, everything was pretty close to the finish line there. There were other firsts, but he took one of the first daguerreotypes in the U.S. because he had all the equipment and things. And he taught Brady how to take pictures and was quite an extraordinary inventor and, you know, artist and broke all most of his life and very interesting story. And his cousin is James Elbreece. Well, wait, did he like die of uh, mercury poisoning like all the other daguerreotypists? Um, no, he worked a whole bunch of his life in fighting to have copyright of the telegraph, which started instant communication. That was, you know, this book I have printed from the 1860s is a wire going around the world. You know, wow, did that change life? That instant, that sort of is the picture of where we are today. You know, was it good or bad? You know. He said on his tombstone, what has God brought? And it's true. What have we unleashed here for better, or for worse? But incredible. You, you can't imagine to have communication that would take months or years. Instant, you know, was uh, really something else hard to imagine. He was quite a character and a heavyweight in that world of early New York. I, Our New York family starts in buried in 1710 in Trinity Church. He was the harbor master, you know, when they traded Manhattan Island for some blankets and beads and stuff that the breezes were there and can follow that hairy bloodline all the way through up to Brees, who also was a photographer that I used to celebrate a famous ragtime, El Doctoros used it many. Julian Fellows draws on him with Downton Abbey and and things. And you know, the more most recent, there's the Gilded Age that happened. But they his best friend, Stanford White, they were a wild bunch, and he had the first girl that popped out of a pie and that was the first girl coming out of a cake for a big stag dinner and it made front page papers with the Hearst papers and a big scandal and then you know of course eventually Stanford White was shot by Harry K. Thaw of the beautiful model Evelyn Nesbitt that, that was the girl and then I got to visit his studio a couple of years ago and go up the staircase the 
the studio is still there on 5 West 16th Street in New York at the foot of Woman's Mile. And, and I have these incredible carbon portraits of hundreds and hundreds of people he photographed. And back in the day, I used to hold up that pie girl dinner as this first sensational thing. Now with, you know, old white guys and the Me Too thing, it's kind of, it's, it is not held up very high. Now I throw Stanford White. It was the party for Stanford White. You know, I throw him under the bus. But what was incredible about his studio that I'm focusing on now is a whole cast of characters of the, like, LGBT community, gay crew and female abstract painters, Miss Leslie Cotton, and, you know, these group of women we identified, it was the Beecher Stowe sisters, and Harriet Beecher Stowe, you know, like the leaders of the feminine moment. So all of a sudden, Brees is back, you know, he was so ahead of the curve, uh, an incredible modernist art critic that no one knows these days was Sadachi Hartman. And he's the one that said, stop being fuzzy, wuzzy picture. Take, stop you photographers trying to be arty, fart, you know, be clear and sharp and be photography, you know, that greatly influenced the incoming uh, next generation after the fuzzy wuzzies. The fuzzy wuzzies being the photo secessionists, I assume. Yeah, that, that oh yeah, and Brees, I got a book on the start of the Camera Club of New York that was the first gathering of fine art photographers. And there I am, I'm like holding the book and it says, uh, James L. Brees and Robert Frazier were the primary inspiration of the Camera Club of New York. Like, ah! There he is, you know, and then boop, forgotten about. You can ask just about any photographic historian and they don't know who he is. And he just completely off the screen. And that importance, and it might have been partially because the scandals and the he just kind of was an unsavory type. But I'm deeply into his support of women female photographers and painters in the gay community. That's, to be gay then, that was really pushing. And I, and I have this incredible, called the Falconeer, it's Artho Cushing, that was just a wild screaming queen in leotards, and his junk is right behind open, and he wore it to this famous ball, the Bradley Mark ball, with a falcon, Brees has this shot. I could share it with you on the screen. It's just a remarkable image. And to find out his whole story of being gay at that time was, and a good friend with Brees was, is very exciting for me. And now, hold on. So let's jump forward a little bit because, like, basically, I'm, I'm interested in how, like, when you were young, were you aware of all this family heritage kind of thing, or was it this is only sort of you learned this later in your life? A little bit. My mom would say, "Oh, you know, your your relative invented the telegraph." You know, oh, really? You know, and. Did I start to hoard material and, you know, eBay searching <laughs> came much, much, much later. What really kicked me going 
One was a great aunt, another abstract. She drove cars in 1907. She dumped her banker husband and married a big black Haitian guy in Southampton, New York, mind you. There are worse places to have done that. She was ostracized from society there immediately. You don't say. But she lived in a modernist house, the first on in Bridgehampton and did abstract expression. She designed the flat in army camo as hers and all sorts. She, she was so cool. And so early on, she wrote books about growing up in New York with her grandpa, James L. Brees, the photographer, pie girl father, and told his story. And so I became very close to her and pen pals and she's the one that lit the fire that told the history it would have if she didn't write three books on the family none of us it would have gone and i find it very interesting with our own family i'll be like oh my god look what i found and you know remember and they don't really care they're i don't they you know all my nieces and i'm sorry they i'm sort of shocked they don't want to gather all the, I guess, you know, I've always been a celebrity freak, you know, like any celebrityism I'm always chasing after. Well, that nature of like family heritage is a, is a, a treat that like some people take on and some people don't. Some people have that sort of sentimental sort of romantic visions of, of like historical occurrences, whereas others don't like in my family, living right now, I'd say I'm probably the only one in my family that cares about our family history. Everybody else is just like, oh yeah, here is, we've got stuff in a shoebox. I don't know what it is. Yeah, same. <laughs> same. If nuts. they even do in a shoebox, they send it to me. Look what I found. I would love it if they would send me their shoeboxes. And, and I have become sort of the great ground and gatekeeper, and it, it'll eventually probably go to the Library of Congress. I have a photo editor friend who took a job there from Denver, and it's always in this world who you know, you know, of course. Correct. But it continues on the tale of right now and i just bought a piece a brief piece on ebay the brief the photographer had sons and they were into racing cars and when you're wealthy in new york the leisure people they race cars. there is a famous vanderbilt uh race that went out long island and came around in like 1907 you know 1906 and they built cars and started cars and he made the new york times and they founded the AAA, you know, the American Automobile Association stuff. And a new fun fact, brand new, hot off the press, and I just bought an advertisement for it. They designed a automobile for the sportsman. It was the first sports car. It was low, the wheel came back, it wasn't sitting up, you know, like a carriage. And it was this fast little aluminum sports car for the sporty automobile guy. And they are now saying that's the sportsman. People are very into automobiles and automobile history. It's like I found this whole crew that has done more research on the Brees automobiles than I've done on all his life. You know, they're just very fanatically into it. They just alerted me 
to an ad with this sports car. It's the first brief sports car. Oh, and then I was leading up to came out of Hollywood history that came at the first film in Hollywood history at the very top of the pyramid was a presentation by Alexander Black called Miss Jerry, a picture play. And that was lantern slides being shown in succession that gave the appearance of movement through a projector in a room. And that was this first just, oh, my God. And that's considered the first movie shown in the United States at James L. Brees' studio, (laughs) 5 West 16th Street. So I find in the clipping books, there's Miss Jerry Clippings. And there's the film, and there's the thing, and then the nest. So there's the guy of the first in history. It's starting to come. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but these guys that are at the beginning of tele, you know, the beginning, the first thing, the first sports car, it's really hairy. And it keeps going. Grandpa, engineer, and they built cars. He flew across the ocean eight years before Lindbergh. Front page of the New York Times, first across in a Navy seaplane, four of them left, only one made it. Well, why is it Lindbergh has all the credit for it then? They were in a Navy seaplane and they would land on the water and and tool on the engines and putter around and take back off again, you know, have sandwiches and tea and then take back off again. Lindbergh went nonstop. But they won the first across in an airplane. In those days, it's hard to imagine, they didn't have radar. They had a sextant. And they would go out in the open air on the nose of the airplane (laughs) and take a sextant reading while they were going against the wind at about 45 miles per hour, you know, in a canvas and balsa wood plane. Huge plane. The plane is in... uh, the Smithsonian and naval aerial history people know it. But if you told people, you know, he was in 1919. Oh, and the car company was the Brees Lawrence Motor Car Company. And Lawrence is the guy who built the engine for the Spirit of St. Louis. They were all, uh, I don't know if anyone cares about these fun facts, but me, you know, I, I just love this stuff. But history forgets it. The whole point is I'm living this life of these narratives that if someone like me, you know, if someone wasn't digging this out to tell a story, it would really pretty much evaporate into history. I'm super sensitive to this around because it's right within my own family. And if that much disappears and rewritten narratives, you know, like, Can you imagine what's out in the real world? I have art historians tell me like, oh, yeah, you know, Vimlin Thornton, he, the guy that coined uh, Renaissance art after world, they just went through burnt churches and sort of picked the who's who of the canons of the art world. And there was tons more people that were there, but we only have this one little narrow narrative of what western art history is and it actually is just created by a few people well that's literally 
the definition of all of the art world. I mean, you know, we say that in America that they did that, but the, the honest truth is they did that everywhere. I mean, there have always been tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of active artists at any given moment in any given place. But then there's that culling of it by curators or, or, or them, you know, the, those people that sort of decide who's the worthy ones, which is a big sort of pet peeve of mine about the art world. Me too. That was part of my giant peeve when I lived in New York City was in the 80s even was the haves and the have-nots. I had to carry a big Cy Twombly out in the wind to bring to, you know, it was worth a million and a half dollars to then and to, you know, show an art dealer two blocks away because he wouldn't come into that one art dealer's space. And I was watching these drugged out people, you know, were unhappy and drugged and they had more money than God. And then there was the rest of the population of incredible talent, incredible people, all there getting pushed out, you know, unrecognized in town. A, a friend of mine showed me around in Chicago. That was the same thing in the music industry. When we started going around to some of these clubs, I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to be famous, you know, and he's like, oh, no. Oh, no, they've been around for years and we'd go somewhere else. And I'm like, why haven't we heard of any of these people? And he's like, well, that's how it works. Just like the art world. Incredible, incredible stories that don't get told. It's a really sad state. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what I'm getting to is like the, the who controls it. Like, you know, I jokingly always talk about them. It's those other people. It's never me. I'm not the arbiter of good taste in that way kind of thing. But there are these people, whether an artist is collected by a so-and-so collector or accepted by a curator at so-and-so institution or on exhibition at so-and-so gallery, like whatever kind of societal thing that somehow sort of rubber stamps them with like approved artist. This person is an acknowledged artist. I wish there was something, some way around that to allow for a bit more of a conversation instead of what I feel like is a, a funnel that sort of goes through a sieve kind of thing and, and only certain things ever get acknowledged. Well, there is. I do enjoy, you know, that's, we're YouTube. And when the red camera came about and, you know, I, you know, I'm a reverse technologist. Everyone's going for more megapixels. I go, I'm going back in time, the other direction. Uh, and when I saw the film Tangerine about LA street transvestite, when it shot with an iPhone 6 on the big screen at Sundance, that went, iPhone 6, you know, and they'd have to wait till the diner emptied out because they did the whole thing on $6,000. That I get very excited about, that democratization of that it's not the equipment, it's the concept. And that's the cream that comes to the top. And now your iPhone, you know, and digital, which used to be hocus pocus for only the elites, in the commercial world, if you could afford the blads in the studio, you know, you you could be up there. And now everyone has it. So now the cream comes to the top of the people with a good eye and good concept, depending on who the creative director is, of course. <laughs> That's another stick I have. 
yet we hope that the cream rises to the top the the concepts and the and the, the merit and all this like i'm feeling less and less these days that merit has anything to do with you know sort of success or acceptance or anything like that and it's more to do with like s subtler things like you're a nice person you make good friends with people because like i see you know there's even like social media, Instagram and all that kind of stuff, it's basically like if you play their game well, you can be quote unquote successful on that platform. And in the same way, the arts world is another platform that if you play their game that you can be successful in to a certain extent, kind of regardless of your merit. It is. Uh, we all know people that play the game well that are terrible photographers. And, you know, you just cringe like, how did they make it to the other side? That's because they have panache on really knowing how to work the system. My whole life, for better or for worse, I could never just suck up to things like that and be people. And I've tried to have agents and I just can't do it. They get you all built up. This is a really important client and you have two minutes with them and you got to do it. And I just struggled with that. I, I just fell out of commercial world thinking the fashion world and it was going to be so incredible, you know, and I'm finally getting in and I got an agent. I'm in New York and I'm in Vogue. And, and when I got in there and I kind of wasn't what I was expecting and I was a little let down in the things. So I flipped over instead of photographing clothing and and personalities with an agent i flipped to photographing artwork for artists and being able to go into a studio and shoot eight by ten transparencies with marlboro artists and talk with the artist and they would give me work you know collect and that became a very new exciting chapter in my life that i really enjoyed but i was broke all the time you know like hauling around four by five equipment on the subways around in New York City, you know, to get to two or three jobs was quite the days. But now I look at that romantically. I, <laughs> and we had I, my studio that was in Colonel Bleeker's old 1700s house on Bleeker and Broadway in the uh, Louis Sullivan beautiful white ceramic building that now art forum is in and the warhol foundation right there in the village and across the street the bleaker building which used to be the bleaker farm when a river ran down broadway and stuff but i squatted i just wanted to store trunks under the gallery there and i started digging out they cut off they said sure we don't know what's there to do what you want and I cut the lock off and started digging, and it was an archaeological dig going down deeper. And the building was from 1700s, and urban archaeologists would come and like, oh my God, that nail, that's a so-and-so nail, you know, and they're all gathered around measuring it, taking pictures of it, a nail. I had my coat on the wall, but I squatted under there, and that was my office of operations for free. And across the street in the Louis Sullivan building was the New York Film Works 24 hours a day, one hour. You get your film done. It was just so beautiful. And everyone would be in there. It was quite the star studded scene from Annie Leibowitz to Robert Maple. So, you know, they were all in there waiting just like me to see 
you know, get the proofs <laughs> back. Mine was sheets of paintings I shot. I have boxes and boxes full of transparencies of paintings. And now it's interesting to look at those, even the Warhols and the Jean-Michel paintings. That's an object like there's something even about that as an intrinsic value that you shot that piece and you're holding an actual transparency that was there shooting it, you know, with the artists there. It has an intrinsic value, a very interesting feeling to it. Different than if you had that on a chip and a hard drive. Oh yeah. I love material objects far more than digital versions like i'm not into the nfts i'm not into i'm barely even into like images on computers at all like I, i'm still a fan of negatives i recently had a family portrait done as an amber type like, like i'm all for it yeah behind this that's what i'm doing now we all are you know i just got the nikon to shoot slides you know put your slides in the night you know, we all scan them but boy you can do them quickly shoot them in raw with a Nikon going through my Kodachrome series. I keep finding things I forgot about. I used to shoot storefronts in the Lower East Side, just square up. I would see a great old storefront and I would just go up and square it up and shoot it. And down on Ludlow, there's a documentary being done on Ludlow Street where Katz's Delicatessen was. And I shot all around there and I forgot all about that until I was looking. I'm like, oh my God, in Kodachrome. They look so great in Kodachrome. And same thing, I found a whole series of Warhol that I'm very excited about because it turns celebrityism into art. I never like, like speaking of Leibowitz, I struggle with people who shoot celebrities and put it in a fine art gallery as fine art, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger on the white horse on the beach that sells out in LA. You know, I struggle with that. I'm sorry. I'm a portrait photographer. I know what it is, you know, it's perfectly legitimate work and people that want it, but as high art form, I never feel comfortable when a really good gallery wants to show because I have snapshots of Jean-Michel. I'm never comfortable of that being a high art form. And I'm sorry, you know, we all know just really great portraitists and, and people have done really beautiful work with celebrities and things that we live in a, our celebrity worship world. And there are people that hand us beautiful, beautifully done work of our celebrity worship. And that's, it's great, but as a fine art, I just had a conversation the other day with an uh, somebody who does sort of archivist, uh, an academic that does research on these kinds of things, and they were bringing up the point of when it comes to something like that, so like a portrait image of a famous person, is it like who, who, who what's the power dynamic? What's the, who has the control? And like in the end, who is it? Is it? The, a picture of the celebrity or is it a picture by Annie Leibovitz? So like, which right. is the, the fur, what, what's the hierarchy of that? Like, is it Arnold Schwarzenegger by Annie Leibovitz or is it Annie Leibovitz taking a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger? So like, is the image of the famous person or is it sort of by the photographer? 
And that struggle <laughs> and balance is a very interesting conversation to think about. It was just plain old jealousy for me. Part of it was <laughs> she got paid. She could buy a house with American Express that paid her for that series with, you know, on the beat and the thing like the amount of money is uncalculable. And and she lost it all. Then, go on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, the, and she lived right next to Robin Rice Gallery there on 11th Street. Well, it was jealousy for me that you could not only get the top of the pile of international ad account, but you have the rights then when I would walk into a high-end gallery in Aspen, and there they were in an edition of 20 with 20 dots of them all sold. It's something, it's jealousy. I haven't unpacked it really, but I would just walk up, oh, please, you know, really, you know, excuse me. And I don't know. And more power to her. And she's a great portraitist of the bet, you know, really great lens woman. And we can't, you know, incredible history. I went to the San Francisco Art Institute, which is where she went to school. And you talk about like jealousy and envy and all this kind of stuff. And like my teachers who were her teachers kind of used to bad mouth her as well. And, yeah. and, and I always was like, are you, is, are you actually like bad mouthing her or are you actually kind of jealous and envious that basically she's doing better than you ever did in your career? I actually experienced that myself with a photography teacher that when I had met Warhol and I was developing contact sheets of Warhol and me and Mick and Watson. Yeah, we once on his desk, he had an invitation to a Kodak Images and Silver War and he pulled it back from his desk and said, no, that's for us real photographers, your students. And I was like, oh, okay. So I submitted to it and got in and won, and it went to New York and stuff. And ever since then, he was very cruel to me. I hope he's not listening to this. This He'll know who it is. <laughs> yeah, and I hope my professors are not listening to this as well, because they'll get angry with me as well. Interesting, you, met, you said that you were define yourself as a portraitist. Which I find, like, I can relate to that because people are continually like, why don't you take pictures of, you know, landscapes or whatever? And I'm like, I like people. Like, so, like, I always photograph people. They utterly fascinate me. You know, the fact that you sort of made an entire career on doing that, was that a choice? Or, what, like, did you say, I love people? Or was it those were the jobs available and then you just sort of fell in love with it? Maybe both. Starting out, I would take any job I could. I shot society, would go to the parties in my bow tie to shoot the society. I just was a paparazzi, you know, would go in there. And I just realized, you know, that, yes, was an income source and shooting bands early on of our local band. And, you know, was in there and that got you in the scene and you got... and. So that sort of kicked things going that direction. But then getting into studying art and being exploratory, that's when the Starn twins were coming on. And that's when I used to scratch surfaces and we would piss on the prints and take over the darkroom all night long and just do 
some of the best work I've ever made, you know, was just being super irreverent and taping and stapling. And I had a teacher, Ruth Thorn Thompson, the pinhole photographer, that was like, the camera, screw the camera. I use a little box with a pinhole for all my work, you know, like it's all about that. And so it all was starting to come. And I learned from Lucas Samaras, you know, messing with Polaroid. And then I found light painting, and I use this to the day you can turn down your flash power and put a piece of tape on the SX-70, and it opens up for about six to eight seconds. And you do your key light, hair light, background light, and you could, you know, on the spot, take an extraordinary you know, I have Grace Jones and what, you know, and they would see these like, who are you? You know, this is amazing. Bob, come over here. And you were the life of the party. It was my shtick around New York City, you know, and then they sign it for you. And that's my famous face Polaroid suit that are so beautiful, you know, that Barbara Hitchcock and the Polaroid Corporation loved them, you know, and that was from Lucas Samaras lesson to put a piece of tape on that and you can make magic. And it's art performance too. It's immersive. A person, when you're shrouding them, it's really interesting. First of all, a celebrity, if you go up to with the big Nikon, they would go, get away. But when you come up with a little Polaroid and they're like, oh, sure. You know, yeah, you can take a Polaroid. That got you in. And then I would go, well, you have to hold still. And they're like, they've already said yes. And you put down the tripod legs and they have to realize now hold still for eight seconds and you do this. Then they're like, what did you just do? Let's see what this is. And it was really a fun experience. And I, you can now do that, you know, with digital, of course, just a little power and you can make fantastic portraits. I didn't know if I answered your question, but that's carried on and on and on. And now uh, long exposure is carried into, you know, collodion wet plate. Of course, the toy camera was before this. And I used to pride myself with showing up to a job like for the New Yorker of all the famous people. They did Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, or they were doing all the books and I have landed this giant job and and they got all the account executives they all came to the studio and i got there with my diana camera hanging around my neck and they're like where's your team where's your stuff you know <laughs> this is it and they're like this is a joke right you're you're like this. and everyone's like oh god oh i'm so sorry you know and they had already said it, and I shot that was uh, for J.D. Salinger, Catcher in the Rye, and I shot the guy the book because they left, and I developed in contact sheets, and I went in. They're like, oh, here's our mistake, and they go, what do you got? And they looked at the contact sheets, and they said, you just shot that? I said, yeah, this, this, this is fantastic. You know, Bob and the whole art department clapped, and they gave me the rest of the job, and but I did it again with Wells Fargo and it didn't go over well. And, <laughs> and I, so I learned stop making fun with a toy camera in front of expensive, really big shoots. 
Well, uh, those kinds of cameras have their place in the industry for sure. I mean, I'm a huge fan. I love all that kind of stuff. Like I grew up with Holga's, not so much Diana cameras. Sure. And I love them. There's a sense of playfulness. And also like there's that like it releases you of that pressure of like, I've got this expensive equipment that I need to be making a beautiful, sharp, perfect image. Like as soon as you put a plastic camera or a pinhole camera in your hand, you're just like, well, I'll just try that. <laughs> so, exactly. And you can go around and it's loose and you can go swimming in it. And when you put in someone's face, they look at it like they have this look like, oh, hey, oh, that's so funny. They're not like that. You can see they're like it's a playfulness that gets you in also. But, you know, that ran its course. Although if you look at a TV commercial now, count commercials that have vignetting and soft diana looking photographs it is very in vogue to do digitally now on commercials if you count them you would when you start looking for it you'd be surprised well i mean one of the things that like because i do you know i'm a professor i also do portfolio reviews for lens culture online anonymously nobody knows i do it but i do it and (laughs) And there are another things, ones out. <laughs> yeah, no. One of the other things that I, I'm always fascinated by is like how how obsessed photographers are with their equipment. They're always like, oh, and this was shot with a so-and-so camera, blah, 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 on this aperture and that lens. And like, I don't fucking care. Like, I don't understand why so many photographers are so fixated on their equipment. Because like I was raised with the idea more of a poor musician blames his instrument kind of thing. So oh, yeah, like, of course. If you're ab- if you're creative you will make something regardless of what equipment you have but part of it is just understanding the technologies and then being able to know what its capabilities and its limitations are and then do something with it cole port said learn your music inside out upside down backwards forwards on your head then forget all that shit and just play and it is i attribute it to i can get in trouble here but women tend not to be gearheads as much. And I had two fantastic instructors, Barb Houghton and Ruth Orne Thompson, that were like, camera doesn't matter. You know, let's build an idea. Don't take a picture, make a picture. Let's together is the great line of lines. Where does that come from? I've been saying that for decades. We should we should dig who there's even a, a publication, don't take don't take pictures. And, well, see, and, there, I uh, mean, there, and there's the opposite from that Kodak commercials from the seventies, which is, you know, like, to, like capture a moment kind of thing instead of like, instead of make a moment kind of thing. So right. I'm fascinated. I wonder where that came from. Cause I use that same phrase. Listeners out there find, find where they can, can like, you know, the controversy goes with Warhol, you know, you'll be famous for 15 minutes. You know, they really dug in it. Andy did not bring that line up. You know, coming from the aesthetic, again, a non-gearhead came from being early inspired by female practitioners. She goes, here's the Upton and Upton book. Want you to shoot 20 rolls of film and develop it. Boom. Contact sheets next week on the desk. We're all like, what? What a, yeah, that's no teaching. You know, who are, and next door. They were teaching the zone system with film density tests going through Ansel Adams' process. 
by month two or three, we were flying, you know, making work and studying, doing great narratives. Next door, they were moving on to the next step of, you know, of negative. They didn't even get to take a picture for six months you know, on, on the side of that field. And that's the two. And they would look at cool. This is, you know, a deer dwarf, and they would ogle over, you know, the whole class session over a deer dwarf. And I, I want to make it clear. I love good equipment, like well designed equipment, you know, easy to use, nice in the hand, feels comfortable. I feel like a, the right equipment for any photographer is the equipment that basically, when they hold it in their hand and, and put it up their eye or, or at waist level, whatever method they're doing, like that they don't even notice the equipment anymore. That it's just it's yep. a natural extension and it's just easy and natural for them. So everybody has their own right equipment. And, you know, for me, it's definitely not the super high-end digital stuff. My arms get tired. It's exhausting. <laughs> well, we all, come on. We all thought if I could just get a Hasselblad, I will make great pictures. Like, but if my I can just get would there. be on a tripod. <laughs> Yeah, and and I gotta admit, I got my Hasselblad, but my pictures didn't get much better. But you know, today I have the Hasselblad there. I'm still using that beautiful thing I bought in 1982. And that's another grumpy old man thing. Bicycle components, cameras were all universal. You know, like the film, it was this beautiful thing for decades after decades. And one day, the corporate investment people, what were we thinking? You know, and we're in this pay for it weird loop now that my D3, D2 Nikon I paid $6,000 for or whatever is worth 100 bucks now. You know, the minute it's like a car, you turn the ignition and they just have everyone locked up in this mafia loop you know photoshop we all pay for the creative suite that is a new mafia that you can't buy the programs i have photoshop one i've been with mac and apple since the beginning they should give us a lifetime you know because we have paid our dues through the decades from the very beginning i'm still bitter paying a monthly fee for photoshop at this point because every time it, it just annoys ah. me because they're just trying to make more money off of us that's it the amount of money that they have us mafia into pay the man is uncalculable and who knew that was coming I, I don't know what our time is i would love to tell the story did you ever go out to the rockport maine photographic congresses we had one that kind of tells so much of the story to me of everything that happened on one of these congresses the one thing that was going down in 87 was the Robert Maplethorpe with Jesse Helms that did more front page of the New York Times with Andre Serrano, brought conversation on the import of photography and what it is like nothing worldwide before that did more for photography was incredible. So that was going down in piss Christ. Andre Serrano's effigy in the piss was going down. And Andre was there. Then also was 
what's his name did the uh, Marlboro ads the appropriator um, Richard Prince. Prince. Richard Prince there with the Marlboro ads and an art forum guy so oh Scully was there to introduce this Apple II with a new program called Photoshop and we we're all at the Photoshop like oh please and it was the man on the moon photograph and he zoomed in on the flag and the stars and the stars got soft and he said they're working on a new tool called sharpen and he hit sharpen and the stars went sharp and everyone <gasps> gasped and he showed if you ever go onto youtube it's called the knowledge navigator he said this might be the future and it was an ipad with a woman talking to him and he could pull up information through an information base, Google, you know, it, everything on that iPad, setting his conference, doing maps, it all came. And when he showed that, we were all like, yeah, right, Star Trek, dream on, you know, like, oh, please, because we didn't have cell phones and computers were just, just coming. And that was an incredible breakthrough. Then. Andre Serrano, like, yeah, man, you know, real street culture down on the art establishment and like straight off the street. Ten years later, go forward, I saw him present at the Denver Art Museum and he was in an Armani suit and like, yes, the comparative analytical subjugation to my work. He went, he was speaking like a professor. I have never seen such a transformation of someone that became into the darling of the art world and how it transformed him into a art basel <laughs> like discussing in the trendiest art terminology and lastly the richard prince the guy was showing which was his break just coming in the marlboro ad and the photographer that shot the Marlboro ad was in the crowd and freaked out an old timer National Geographic shooter got a what is this shit and he went up to the balcony and pulled the slide reel off the tray and threw it down the alley with the slides flying that they said well I guess that's the end of our lecture tonight everybody thank thank you Thank you so much. Yeah, these beginnings, we were there at the beginning. <laughs> but that was quite a conference. You know, talk about sort of putting a stake in time of things going crazy since. All right. So I want to know a little bit about what you're sort of doing now. So like now you you define yourself as a reverse technologist, sort of going back to historical processes and stuff like this. I love it. I'm all for it. As a matter of fact, like I've even reverted to almost like sort of painting for you know, for lack of you yes. know, going even farther back. But the I mean, are people of accepting of this? Are you getting exhibitions? Are you having sales? Are like are people wanting? The, there's a difference between us as creators, where we're like, oh my god, I really love this process, and I want to do this historical thing that's very fragile and very you know unique and one of a kind. But do the people like the the uh, art establishment or collectors or or general audience buyers do they appreciate that sort of unique qualities? Sure. I 
still am having a run on, and I debate this within myself, I had quite a run with collodion wet plates early on in the curb and have carried it through and just they're magical you do a wet plate on blue glass and you get a portrait you know on your social media when you get like five thousand likes you know like you can tell when a great portrait connects with people it really is magic it really has a hold it doesn't matter who it is and it doesn't have to be breast showing or you know or something that gets that whole troop, but when you just get a face that transcends all cultures and time, and it's just timeless. And I love that. And that's what I call dancing in the dark room. When an image comes up and you're just singing and you're dancing and you're just high-fiving with my wife, I don't care if that feeling comes, then I'll, it just stops coming, then I'll stop doing it. And our wonderful Robin Rice Gallery sells well, with, and they're accepted, but people are catching up. I don't know if you went through, remember the Polaroid transfer moments, you know, of things. There's sort of been flavors of the month, and a collodion, you know, is a shtick that is kind of a flavor of the month that everyone's jumped aboard. And my cut up, there are great shooters that shoot in studio with collodion, but I just use natural light on the front step of our house. You know, like when you start to tune it up into studio perfection, I fall off. You know, I, I don't know why I like using it in a traditionalist sense of natural light or something. And now since having a kid, it's very toxic. So I've pulled back and I've been working a lot of time with, I super enjoy kind of like you, I'm pulling away. We have enough material from past that you can cut up and you can paint on and you see and you can, you know, collage and building on things that were about to go to the trash can. I made this huge pile of outtakes and I realized this is incredible. You know, can spray paint cut this out and turn this into a collage piece and I'm into dots and Yaoi Kasama and dotting ups and putting surfaces. So I'm enjoying that a lot. Does that connect with the public as much? Not as much. And I don't really care. Not yet. But you do need people, you know, critical, you know, uh, approval, you know, of course. Anyone can say, I don't care. You have to have time to step back to go, do I really like this? It's interesting to look at old work that carries on that still makes it through time and same thing with any work you do it takes time sometimes to really figure out is this really or am i just doing another stick it's something that really is real and honest but getting it out there what i've done and anyone does and you're doing it it's creating a community around you Anything I did with my group and my work, I started the Denver Salon Group of people I highly admired. And you get a group together, then you have a power in numbers and you can present that to a gallery or museum. And your chances of getting into that are a thousand times greater than if you just show your work by yourself. So you can create this wave to surf all around that with alternative camera work and toy camera work. And now I started our Denver Collage Club and it's collage artists that we have from all over the world. And we're getting shows 
all over. And it's again, any art movement was always a group you'll find. Through history, they gathered together in salons. And I can recommend that to anyone. Don't wait for it to happen. Make it happen. Go around. Don't make a club where people can just join. Pick, curate your, sorry, I know that, that sounds kind of elitist, but. No, it was completely elitist, but it's fine. Pick, 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 pick people that inspire you. When you're at an art company, you go, oh my God, that's incredible. Invite them to your salon, to your house, and you're curating a group and they really love to do this. You keep, I thought, oh, people are going to get tired, come to my living room. They don't. This day and age, it's show and tell. Everyone loves you. You don't have to show work. You can talk about a book you're reading and you have a nice meal and it's a salon. It's a really beautiful thing that people don't do that much anymore. I always, for an artist, that feeling when I started in art, you look at the world and the work and you're like, oh my God, we all, even today I have this, the other side, I'm never going to make it there. You know, like it's just too overset in this gigantic world. There's always someone bigger or better and more in or knows more and has better connection. It's just, that's what we do in social media. The psychology of comparison is such a dangerous hole dangerous, dangerous hole that I believe is a suicide rate with young kids now today from flipping their Instagram and seeing they're not pretty enough, skinny enough, you know, none on eating disorder. It's all this comparative. We do it. I do it. I was just talking about Annie Leibovitz and comparing, you know, damn her. And it's happening. But when you have a group, you find out you're all in the same boat. And you're all got this mission to get a great show on a wall together. And it happens. It's really exciting. I can recommend it to anyone. Start your salon. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I mean, it's something that I picked up on in doing this podcast that people started talking about. Because like in Europe, they call it collectives. Uh, that's a, a uh -huh. very common term that they use it's an interesting thing because you know like when i was in school and i mean you're a little older than me so like i'm sure when you were in school there was still that romanticized idea of like the individual lone artist blah 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 all this kind of stuff and i mean what i've come to learn is is like even being in school the education was great but that was not the purpose really of it the purpose of going to a school was to create a peer group to create a group of people that you could then grow with as a as your career goes on and then of course making new peer groups as you go on and the, you know like you said every artist movement and everything that we can ever think of in art history is never just one person it's a group of people this solo artist this this you know sitting in the studio smoking cigarettes drinking coffee you know real romantic artists never existed it, it's always been about a group and we just haven't True. romanticized that enough to realize that that's actually probably more important the role as a curator that's what i enjoy uncovering these hidden a lot of times, some of the greatest artists can't market or show their work or get them. And it takes to go, oh, my God, you know, this is incredible. 
That's why I love portfolio reviews. The ones that the urchins that came out, but okay, you know, I'll finally do it, you know. And they're just incredible discoveries from all over the world. That's what the beautiful, bless his heart, Fred Baldwin and Houston Photo Fest. Fred would always say, New York is not the center of the art world. There is insanely beautiful work all over the world that we're going to bring in here for people to see. And that is so true. And well, speaking of that also, been looking again in the salon and collective thing to get this in your mind and going that it's a cycle I've been doing my whole life. And we're at Houston Photo Fest and we're talking, we should start a festival of festivals. Let's salon all the festivals around the world. And so we started the festival of light.net. You can go and coordinate festival. And then we've been sharing curators have been sharing shows and this network thing. And it's just my psychology. I have the weirdest thing when people will come to me and ask, can we do a show with your work? I'll say, well, I've got this collage group. <laughs> It'll be a much better show than just me. And it's right. It will be. And it's kind of like someone goes, how should I be found? Well, go do a portfolio reviews is one of the best things you can do for your career. And by the way, I'll say, here's the Festival of Light. You can go to Photo España or Photo Mexico or Paris Photo or Russian... No, or in, there's even one in Alpo, Syria. <laughs> running, still running. They're up and running in Alpo, Syria. Complete bombed out city. And they're still going part of our... But I love that stuff. And now with Zoom and our Collage Club crew, it's so exciting. We have people in Buenos Aires and my friend Matthew Rose in Paris. And we check in and we have it on the big screen while you have a salon. You have people worldwide. What a fantastic, you know, that's what I love about our modern era. And Zoom, getting that and being able to record that also with old people telling stories. Oh, it's an incredible tool of lost stories. We did a series of books, the Foxfire books. They were stories of old people started that are lost art and recipes and, you know, of written word that people went to researchers and went around. And But I got to be a part of that project, documenting stories before people pass away of their recipes and things they did in their life and stuff like that. See how I jump track. Just get me back on track. When I go off on these tangents, just <laughs> just reel me back in where we were. You know. No, you're do, you're doing well. There are two two things that you brought up. I love the whole portfolio reviews and how beneficial they are and all that. But a lot of people don't do them well. Like the I, I made many, but the, I swear, like the whole podcast is now becoming like. So I made this mistake in my career where I whatever. <laughs> And you and so, me both. Yeah. So well, I don't know about you. You seem to be doing well. Me, I'm still sort of working on it. I'm still learning from my mistakes at this point. The nature of portfolio reviews is interesting. That So that, that's a topic in and of itself, sort of how to use a portfolio review experience 
to your benefit. That's one thing. The other thing I thought was interesting is that you were bringing up about how like you're, I use the word sort of you're transcending sort of the photograph. So like you're working in collage instead of just working in sort of a more of a purist, let's say photographic manner. And I find it that I know a lot of photographers or people that let's say are earlier in their career known as photographers that later in their lives sort of transcend the photograph in some way. They still might be using the photographic image, but they do something more with it. I mean, like the Starnes twins is a great example, like how they sort of leverage their their fame and fortune into doing things like Big Bamboo and all the other great stuff they've been doing. You know, I I find it very interesting that photographers seem to sort of, again, like transcend it and then sort of push the medium a little bit farther later in their lives, more so than necessarily like painters or sculptors. Oftentimes they'll like push things really hard in the beginning of their career and, and find some interesting, unique thing and then sort of stay with that the rest of their career. So it's sort of a little bit reversed in many ways is what I'm noticing even in myself. Sure. And myself also will have great moments with different photographer friends. Oh, I'm doing the same thing. You know, we all printed a lot of material and now you look at it like, oh boy, you know, and it edges towards, you can't quite throw it out and stuff and just found this marvelous way to go, oh, but I can cut it out or I can paint and I can try this and you can just freely start to experiment and play and collage is just playful i like to say following somewhere you don't know where you're going and if it works and it's so cool but also we're sort of fed up with the multiplicity of a million of them that idea of a unique object one of a kind and that's what the collodion wet plates you know have i love that idea that's it and that's what nfts are too you know in a way and i know a lot of people are down on nft i haven't done it yet but i do think you know it's just a new route to more the power to it if someone wants to own a unique you know it's not quite an object a unique digital thing in your hard drive more power to you i might pull out if they Again, my celebrity slut stuff. And if they want to buy Grace Jones's face forever, go ahead. You know, um, I don't know what Getty will think about that, but. Uh, okay. I want to bring this all back together. Here we go. So we're going to, we're going to finish this up. So the idea of transcending photography, sort of you know, going beyond just the image making, your earlier conversation about concepts, about how the importance of concepts and then sort of tying that together to portfolio reviews. It's basically like, how is it that these days that we can still make sure that we're having some sort of a unique perspective or unique, authentic concept that we're expressing with the sheer volume of stuff in the world? And that's not because like, like you're saying, like, I have a collage group. Well, that's a technique. So the question is like, what are you trying to say with it? So why are you using this thing? So like trying to focus a bit more on that, because when artists, (laughs) including myself, because I'm looking for like a little help here too, but trying to figure out why we do these things and then being able to express it at a portfolio review or in a proposal or in a grant application or whatever. That I find to be oftentimes the most difficult summation of all of this. Oh, it is. 
We have a lot of different ways, you know, the concept or truthfulness, something that's really pure in it, that reads through, that's not trying to be something just to be something. It's hard to explain this. It's, I call it like there are fake abstract painters that do abstract and then there are good ones. And you can't really describe why the good ones hit you in the chest and they're on it. There's something pure, honest in the search. or there, uh, some, and, and then you're getting into aesthetics. One man's triumph is another trash. So, you know, it's a very convoluted of, but what that cream is that rises to the top, that magical cream, is something that we're all searching for and a purity of something that's good. And you put it out and people go, oh, my God, that's great. You know, that you respect curators, people with good, you know, not your joke, you public trained people in the biz, trained professionals in visual arts that respond to it wildly. And you're on to something is the search, of course. Collage is rising. It comes out of because of our oversaturated million, we all have prints, we magazines, things. We have enough material sitting in your magazine bin, and let alone if you save your old magazine days, for an endless supply of art material to tell a billion stories fantastically. And, you know, more of the power too. Yes, the word collective. I called it our Denver Collage Club just to be kind of corny, like a collage club is a takeoff on against the collective use of that gathering. But getting those people together for feedback is an important part of the journey to have a sound feedback booth of people to show that to. When you're in your own echo chamber, it's pretty hard to figure out what's going on and, you know, to get it on out there. I think Chris Rauschenberg's critical mass is one of the great ones that you can hit 60 curators from all over the world with comments for 60 bucks. Um, I, I, I don't know what it costs now, but um, a lot more than that. Is it, a, it used to be 50 curators for 50 bucks when they first started or something. <laughs> no, it's closer to 200 now. Oh, okay. 200 curators for 200 bucks. No, no. 50 curators for 200 bucks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, I think they have more than 50. Do they? I don't know. But I've been with that since the beginning. And we, we bring those traveling shows into our month of photography. It's just incredible discovery in there. Oh, wait. I want to go back for one second. I'm a huge fan of critical mass. I don't want to in any way think that I'm being negative by the fact that it's expensive. It, it is expensive, oh, sure. but it's great. I mean, I know lots of people who have gotten career-changing opportunities oh, through it. So I am in no way discouraging anybody to participate, but just understand in advance that it, it can be expensive. I'm jealous of the business model of it, you know. Um, I've been wanting to kind of steal it, maybe, you know. Excuse me, Chris. But these things, as I'm becoming a ripe old 60-year-old, you got to think of things you can do in the world and business models that for survivability and things. And putting people together like that, it clicks all of my boxes that I talked about 
of getting together as a salon, as a community, an opportunity, and under getting feedback from curators and professionals from all over the world without leaving your home. What could be better? Ceramicists and painters don't have anything like this. Well, Instagram, you have Instagram, but it doesn't really exist. Photographers have this fantastic, really incredible opportunity with portfolio reviews also. I've noticed that. Wait, why don't portfolio reviews exist for other mediums? I've noticed this because like I was look, thinking about, I'm like, what about painters or printmakers or sculptors? Why aren't they, don't, why don't they have portfolio reviews the way is it just because we can put ours under our arm and, and carry it around? I guess so. That's an interesting question. They haven't caught on and maybe it is starting up here or there, you know, if ceramic arts, you would think fiber arts or you would think. R.L. France, is, who's the great-grandfather who inspired Fred and Wendy in PhotoFest. And then I think maybe Chris Rauschenberg came in with Photo Lucida, came along. And I'm, you know, one of the stepchild month of photography of coming down the road. That It's the same thing. It's just an incredible, everyone loves a festival. And again, like my salons, this started, like our museum of contemporary art, started with a board meeting in our backyard with people just dreaming. What would you want? Well, we need a mission statement. No, we need a logo. You're sitting there in the yard with hot dogs in the backyard, you know, sitting, dreaming. And that's how the month of photography exploded into this monster was just bringing in artists and curators and a salon and going, what would you want to do for a month of photography? And people start talking and I would do that show. And to watch this network start to happen right within that meeting in a backyard, an idea and planning meeting was incredible. And people have been trying to figure out, we have this biennial of America's come, they put $20 million into, they just trying to make it work. They can't figure out, they hire expensive curators from Europe and they can't figure out why it just doesn't take off. And they keep coming like, what is Mark Sink doing? And it's simple. You sit in the backyard and talk together <laughs> and want to, get ideas from people and share ideas in person. I can't put enough weight on that, how that works in the arts, in my world, when everything and what you're doing here and bringing me in and bringing these people together. This is this fantastic tentacle of networking that reaching out that is just incredible. We need more of and the people that hide away from that we'll never hear about in history. I feel sorry. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to drag them out screaming and crawling, you know, place them out and to be discovered. And then they fly off in their own wings. It's so fun to watch people be discovered. And I get the ego thing. That's part of fun part of curating is like, yeah, I knew him when I knew, you know, the first time was trying to tell you to come on out of the darkness. It's an ego thing. Curating is as curative as making work. It's very exciting part of my career, putting 
people together in an idea and a concept that you can put out to people to respond to. It's very powerful, very addictive. But let's see, where are we? Two hours now? I told you. Have we even started? Not even. <laughs> have we even? Uh, have we even started to answer any of your questions yet? We, when are we going to start recording? <laughs> no, you've done beautifully. No. So, I mean, I guess the like, last little bit would be because of your, well, I mean, and please don't take it offensive, but like your long and storied and various careers. I mean, you've done things, you know, you were in New York, you were at, hanging out with all those famous people. Now you're in Denver, you're doing all these festivals, you helped found a museum, you've done all these different various things from your well of wisdom and age and, and experiences, do you have any sort of advice for future creative people at this point? Try to be specific, not like keep working or anything silly like that. Something I think that the, the people that maybe you're noticing that people are not doing as well as they should at this point. Well, I think I've hammered in it enough on the tale of don't wait for something to happen, make something to happen and to set a list. I'm a great list person. You make your list of objectives that you can click off of kind of the dreams. I'm a great believer in having dreams and seeing what you can work towards, towards those dreams. And it's really quite remarkable when you look back and you make that list and you're like, wow, I did start a collage club. Oh, wow, I did do that story on Ray Johnson and Xerox art and these things start to fall into place. If you don't get overwhelmed, you've got to focus on directives to things that you pursue. I'm one I'm a left-handed, dyslexic, kind of a slow Forrest Gump kind of person. I really am. And, I, and I'm and i an enigma to people. They can't figure it out. Like that guy to that, you know, woo, he's, I always consider Mark was a little slow. Didn't you think he was a little slow? And it's because I short circuit and I'm overwhelmed and I can't remember people's names. And, you know, sometimes I can't even spell my own name when people are asking quickly and stuff. It's a learning disability that I have always had. And if I didn't have people going, looking and going, you know, you're going to do great things one day. Every step of your life has a teacher that inspired you and it's finding those people that will inspire you. The world stamps you down. Don't gauge yourself on that Instagram, who's better than you. You know, that whole gauging yourself is extremely, extremely dangerous. I'm really looking at that raising a young daughter now, you know, and stuff. Just horrified what comes in on how we gauge ourselves of creativity and importance and wealth and looks and then thing. If somehow you can turn off that array, <laughs> turn that, it's easier said than done. But coming from a guy who always struggled through their life was just lucky. I had someone that believed in me at each step that went, you know, you're all right. And to find that pat on the back, like keep going. And that's cool. I'm a curator. 
there are teachers and curators that will review work and just be want to clean the weaklings right out, you know, scrape out the ones that don't have promise right off the bat. We'll just edit people out. I'm the person that likes to find something really cool within work that's struggling and becoming aware of that strength of something really great. That's where I'm different because I was that person doing really shitty work when I started. <laughs> really bad. We came a long way, you know. Now it's up to like, now I'm at C minus. <laughs> okay, better know. The, uh, one of these days, one of these days. One of these days, you'll take a good photo. It'll be fine. None of these days. I'm trying to get a good photo. One of these days, I'll figure it out. But no, we know it. Um, when we're dancing in the dark room, you know, you just can't quite dance in front of an inkjet printer. <laughs> it's it doesn't that excitement. No. I just don't get that excitement off an inkjet printer. <laughs> I wish I did. I feel guilty when I sell a print and it comes out of that printer. I feel like I'm sort of ripping them off or something, you know, like, because I have a great master printer that does big stuff. He'll be printing posters one minute, literally posters out. And then, oh, it's time for Mark's job, you know, and out comes my print next. For some reason, one minute of poster and one minute of print, you know, that's quote a museum print. Just, yeah, I haven't. I I, uh, I haven't come. I'm, we're old people. We're from the old 1900s. You know, we're we'll die off soon. That won't be an issue in the future. But right now, we're on the crossover of it not being comfortable. There are certain parts of the the inkjet printing or the whatever printing process that like the, there there are still opportunities. Like I mean, I've seen some of I'm, some of my students do some really amazing things with it. Instead of just thinking of an inkjet print as a an end result by itself, running paper through multiple times, you know, printing multiple images, you know, like you know, using, oh, that's great. Using non traditional materials in the printer itself. I mean, like oh, I love there that are too. so oh, many ways to, to really like oh, gold, push gold leafing that. them oh, and yeah. adding to them. Sure, sure. And no, don't get me wrong. Right. I don't mind a good straight print to come out. It's beautiful. A big colored straight. It's when you're trying to be another process. Yeah. I struggle when you're trying to be a platinum print or it's trying to be a watercolor print. When, you know, when it's foeing another process, straight and clear, it's great. It doesn't matter if it's a C print or an inkjet print, but it's when you're trying to create an illusion of another process. Agreed. I just, and I'll tell when I review, I'll tell, tell the person that's up there with a big signature across the front of the print, right over the top of the print. That one too will take the whole review to talk about bigger the signature, worse the art, usually. Unless you're a graffiti artist, the signature can be the art. If you're a tag, it can work in the right circumstances but uh 
no. not in photography. No. no, we're we're going through our pet peeves now. Um, the ones don't don't bring me pictures of poor Indian beggars that you walked by and took a picture of. <laughs> Dwayne Michaels is great on his list too. He can really get on the students, you know. He has given lectures that I'm just, yes. You know, he talks about when you're on like a trapeze and you've got to let go of the one bar and this scary moment before you go to the next bar, exploring. And if you fall to the ground, so the fuck what? You know, just get up, you stupid. Not a big, you know, don't be depressed. You know, I just love his critical review of his checklist of things don't put in front of them well see my big thing i like i grew up in washington dc area but my big pet peeve was always like basically if you go and you photograph you know the washington monument the capitol the white house whatever but you know all the, the iconic things that everybody photographs kind of bullshit basically like my position is this if you think you have seen that photograph before then you should not be taking it because chances are somebody did it better and you're not going to bring anything new to the table. So, like, if it seems familiar, please don't do it again. <laughs> Go to the postcard stand. Uh, I, in film days, my best film, European Travels and Tour, was when you're loading the film and you have to snap a few pictures before you get the first frame up and ready to go. And then you put the phone as... John Ballersari says, as soon as you put the camera to your eye, you've ruined the picture. And you have to digest that. It's true. And the pictures that I have that I took rolling the film have a woman's shoe and through the arch of ship on the water and the cobblestone in detail. And it will be better than the whole roll that I took up and put the camera to my eye and took that stupid picture you could get a better postcard a great the washington monuments uh czech photographer he's from prague or he shot um the buses are all image wrapped with the white house and the capitol all the transportation buses and so he shot details of the buses and they were weird you couldn't tell there would be like a tail light or a melon and it was this great series of washington from the public bus system of the side of the bus now that was a cool series you know to me you have to see it you think he photoshopped it weird but they were straight photographs hmm. just of the bus sides it's hard to explain and i'll tell and then we can go can i tell a conceptual story can i tell a quick quick one sure he was at a photo fest review came up in you know shaggy shoes untied and he said oh i gave away all my pictures i don't really have anything to show you and, and i'm like oh kid you know this is pretty rough and he said i'll tell you about my work and i said okay let's go and sit back and he said well I've been very interested in Google and Google imagery. And you can go into Google uh, and search super famous pictures like Moonrise Over Hernandez. And it was quite astonished that you can get high resolution pictures of this. So 
I would pick the highest resolution picture, download it, and move the moon over just a little bit, bump it up in TIFF, and then upload it as the newest high resolution picture of moonrise over Hernandez to be with and metadata. And he then would list publications he's found that illegally used moonrise over Hernandez with his picture. This is early disinformation of the internet. You know, this, this is in the late 19, you know, this was over 10 years ago. And um, I just gave him a show immediately. It was really incredible work of him changing famous photographs and re-uploading them. And you would put the original photograph next to the one and then list all of the uses of that photograph. And we even had copyright lawyers there for a symposium that I thought I might have really fucked up that they were there to talk about how to cover yourself in copyright and use and you know all the great issues that were going on at the time and and um i thought they're gonna see this section in this show and i'm gonna be really screwed with our museum and i might have really messed up and they walked around together and and they looked at it and they said is it hurting anyone no it's exploring people admit is it no, 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 is it for sale? No, is it? And they said, this is fantastic. This is really good work from copyright lawyers, you know? So oh, yeah. that was that story, a concept sight unseen. If you have a good idea, you don't even need to bring your portfolio. <laughs> okay, uh, man, I'm really running off on weird ones, I'm sorry. It's the, quite all right. No, I'm no. really enjoying this, but thank you. You're asking great questions and just really get me rolling here. Yeah, that's my job. Just wind you up and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're going to lose podcast followers after, you know, that yeah. Mark rolling on and on and on. But some stories, cut it down. If you, if, if, I don't know, I feel sorry for you to go through this. Stuff. I am not the arbiter of good taste. I will. I do. I do not edit uh, my my podcast in as far as the content because I'm not the arbiter of good taste. You know, some person might cling on to some story that, that you said that I find an uninteresting, but they might find it life changing. So I leave the whole conversation in because I don't know what other people are going to associate with. It's not my place. Well, and also. Let me follow up um, in an email when I can find my my Czech photographer friends. Being in your local city, they might be listening in. So I'll really be up. Um, that I'm sorry, you guys, my dementia. I am mind blocking your names at this moment. I'm going to follow up with that. And when you do, I will put a link in the show notes to that that photographer. So still, will get credit. There. They're uh, both wonderful people that I've been following. So hello, you guys. I'm really enjoying, you're so far away, but this you're a part of this network that I kind of want to carry on. You have a new follower. I think you're doing a really great thing. It's something, it's very inspiring of something in on myself of people telling stories. And you're curating this, picking people, this is like my salons, and it's sort of the modern version. But even better, you're recording this. 
this is going into the great AI somewhere. Who knows, you know, my daughter or my daughter's kids could probably dig this out, you know, in future years and things. And that's something that I think is very interesting in this time of our information age that I'm really kind of concerned about that I think people just disappear. And if we've seen it in the past, you know, what are all the ways that we can toot our horns, you know? And when you ask that question, what can people do? You know, I'm a big believer that people have forgotten about to archive yourself and get a Wikipedia page, get something <laughs> that doesn't go away when your .com goes away. There's going to be a black hole when your .com goes away and turns into a porn site. I You're hope gone. that MatthewDoles.com someday turns into a porn site. I think that sounds magnificent. <laughs> You've got to figure out some people, there are foundations that will keep your .com going that I found are pretty interesting. You know, there are, of course, there's the Wayback Machine is people are aware of this. I early on wanted to always do all of the month of photography on Google you know, on a Google blog. I like the idea of places you can place yourself that will be there forever. That are the non-pay for, because when you stop paying for the pay fors, it's bye-bye. That or a sunspot hits us. Yeah, well, or just backups. I got lots of backups. I actually have backup hard drives that have my websites i built back in 2002 sure but have you ever tried to plug a firewire cable into a new new flash cable into the, i have three different conversions now you know oh, i have i have actually done that conversion those hard drives after the third or fourth good luck yeah, and I still have optical disk drives, like so not even yeah. like jazz or zip. I mean before jazz and zip drives. I still have those. Yeah. Well, have you tried to plug in a SCSI recently? <laughs> no, but I still have the cables. <laughs> or or window Windows ninety eight to fire it up to get it going. No, yeah. that's actually what the Smithsonian and Library of Congress, I have attended some lectures they talked about. They thought the world of scanning, boy, they found it, you know, to digitize it all. But it's not like a book. You put that up, you have to re-upgrade that system. They hadn't thought about that part, that there are trillions of gigabytes now has to be upgraded. Uh, well, and of what were the highest technology scanners in 2001, which now would be considered low resolution scanners. So the quality yeah. of the files themselves are antiquated in addition to how they are stored. I'm doing that myself with things I thought I was so cool scanning in the 90s getting my portfolios and all done, I look at those now like, oh boy, this all needs to be redone. Yes, we weren't ready. We thought it was the, the coolest revolution and they're finding out a book sitting on the shelf lasts much longer and it'll make it through if we have a sunspot or electromagnetic moment 
we're all going to be so screwed. We don't know the Achilles heel, boy. It's going to get wild if we have one cough from the sun. They had it in the 1860s. You know, now we can go down that spooky road, you know, the whatever, a million and one ways to, to, to die. But, they, no. but we got a lot of them. We just got through the pandemic. But uh, no, the, the telegraphs all fused together in the 1860s. We had a sunspot. They all stuck together. That would really do it. That happens one more time. And yeah, baby. All that says to me <laughs> is that I got to get back on uh, the train of making books again. Yeah, exactly. Everything's going to go away. and We're going to be looking back at our slides again because the hard drives are gone. And there's going to be this black period, you know, this dark hole that disappears where we are now, but back to when we were analog doing eight millimeter films and Kodachrome and our slides will all still be sitting there and our books and our everything handmade and our prints will all still be there. But uh, yeah, no, let's not go down that road. You can keep on going down that foxhole. Fair enough. No, we, we will end it there. That's another Excellent. podcast. So <laughs> thank you very much for taking the time. It, it was fun meeting you. Vice versa. Uh, thank you for having me along. I really enjoyed this. If you can make any sense or make me not sound like Forrest Gump all the time, I will be thrilled. Thrilled. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. We would also appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, families, co-workers, and studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community both today and in the future is at the core of our mission for this podcast. You can listen rate, and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic and Kunst Centrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website wisefoolpod.com.